Chapter Three of Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Crystal Treader. An Ancient Ruin. On the next day, I rode my bicycle to Peterhead and walked on the pier. It was a bright, clear day, and a fresh northern breeze was blowing. The fishing boats were ready to start at the turn of the tide and as I came up the first of them began to pass out through the harbour mouth. Their movement was beautiful to see, at first slowly, and then getting faster as the sails were hoisted, till at last they swept through the narrow entrance, scuppers under, righting themselves as they swung before the wind in the open sea. Now and again a belated smacksman came hurrying along to catch his boat before she should leave the pier. The eastern pier of Peterhead is guarded by a massive wall of granite, built in several steps, or tiers, which breaks the fury of the gale. When a northern storm is on, it is a wild spot. The waves dash over it in walls of solid green, topped with mountainous masses of foam and spray. But at present, with the July sun beating down, it was a vantage post from which to see the whole harbour and the sea without. I climbed up and sat on the top, looking on admiringly, and lazily smoked in quiet enjoyment. Presently I noticed someone very like Gormala come hurrying along the pier, and now and again crouching behind one of the mooring posts. I said nothing, but kept an eye on her, for I supposed that she was at her usual game of watching someone. Soon a tall man strode leisurely along and from every movement of the woman I could see that he was the subject of her watching. He came near where I sat, and stood there with that calm, unconcerned patience which is a characteristic of the fisherman. He was a fine-looking fellow, well over six feet high, with his tangled mass of thick red-yellow hair and curly bushy beard. He had lustrous, far-seeing, golden-brown eyes and massive, finely-cut features. His pilot-cloth trousers, spangled all over with silver herring scales, were tucked into great bucket boots. He wore a heavy blue jersey and a cap of weasel skin. I had been thinking of the decline of the herring from the action of the trawlers in certain waters, and fancied this would be a good opportunity to get a local opinion. Before long I strolled over and joined this son of the Vikings. He gave it, and it was a decided one, uncompromisingly against the trawlers and the laws which allowed them to do their nefarious work. He spoke in a sort of old-fashioned biblical language, which was moderate and devoid of epithets, but full of apposite illustration. When he had pointed out that certain fishing grounds, formerly most prolific of result to the fishers, were now absolutely worthless, he ended his argument. And sure, good master, it stands to reason. Suppose you be a farmer, and when you have prepared your land and manured it, you sow your seed and plough the ridges, and make it all safe from wind and devastating storm. If, when the green corn be shootin' fray the earth, you take your harrow, and drag it athart the springin' seed, where be then the promise of your golden grain? For a moment or two the beauty of his voice, the deep, resonant earnestness of his tone, 
and the magnificent simple purity of the man took me away from the scene he seemed as though i had looked him through and through and had found him to be throughout of golden worth possibly it was the imagery of his own speech and the colour which his eyes and hair and cap suggested but he seemed to me for an instant as a small figure projected against a background of rolling upland clothed in ripe grain round his feet were massed the folds of a great white sheet whose edges faded into air in a moment the image passed and he stood before me in his full stature i almost gasped for just behind him where she had silently come stood gormala gazing not at the fisherman but at me with eyes that positively blazed with a sort of baleful eagerness. She was looking straight into my eyes. I knew it when I caught the look of hers. The fisherman went on talking. I did not, however, hear what he was saying, for again some mysterious change had come over our surroundings. The blue sea had over it the mystery of darkness of the night. The high noon sun had lost its fiery vigour, and shone with the pale yellow splendour of a full moon all around me before and on either hand was a waste of waters the very air and earth seemed filmed with moving water and the sound of falling waters was in my ears again the golden fisherman was before me for an instant not as a moving speck but in full size now he lay prone limp and lifeless with waxing cold cheeks in the eloquent inaction of death. The white sheet, I could see now that it was a shroud, was around him up to his heart. I seemed to feel Gormala's eyes burning into my brain as I looked. All at once everything seemed to resume its proper proportion, and I was listening calmly to the holding forth of the Viking. I turned instinctively and looked at Gormala. For an instant her eyes seemed to blaze triumphantly. Then she pulled the little shawl which she wore closer round her shoulders, and, with a gesture full of modesty and deference, turned away. She climbed up the ridges of the harbour wall, and sat looking across as at the sea beyond, now studded with a myriad of brown sails. A little later the stolid indifference as to time slipped all at once from the fisherman. He was instinct with life and action, and with a touch of his cap and a farewell, good mister, stood poised on the very edge of the pier, ready to spring on a trim, weather-beaten smack which came rushing along almost grazing the rough stonework. It made our hearts jump as he sprang on board, and taking the tiller from the hand of the steersman, turned the boat's head to the open sea. As she rushed out through the harbour mouth, we heard behind us the voice of an old fisherman who had hobbled up to us. He'll do that once too often. Loch Lane MacLeod is like all these men from Uist and the rest of us out-islanders. They don't care not about not. Lachlan MacLeod, the very man of whom Gormala had prophesied, the very mention of his name seemed to turn me cold. After lunch at the hotel, I played golf on the links till evening drew near. Then I got on my bicycle to return home. I had laboured slowly up the long hill to the Stirling Quarry when I saw Gormala sitting on the roadside on a great boulder of red granite. She was evidently looking out for me, 
for when I came near she rose up and deliberately stood in the roadway in my path. I jumped off my wheel and asked her point-blank what she wanted with me, so much that she stopped me on the road. Gormala was naturally an impressive figure, but at present she looked weird and almost unearthly. Her tall, gaunt form, lit by the afterglow in a soft, mysterious light, was projected against the grey of the darkening sea, whose sombreness was emphasized by the brilliant emerald green of the sword which fell from where she stood to the jagged cliff-line. The loneliness of the spot was profound. From where we stood not a house was to be seen, and the darkening sea was desert of sails. It seemed as if we too were the only living things in nature's vast expanse. To me it was a little awesome. Gormala's first mysterious greeting, when I had seen the morning for the child, and her persistent following of me ever since, had begun to get on my nerves. She had become a sort of enforced condition to me, and whether she was present in the flesh or not, the expectation or the apprehension of her coming, I hardly knew which it was, kept my thoughts perpetually interested in her. Now her weird, statuesque attitude and the scene around us finished my intellectual subjugation. The weather had changed to an almost inconceivable degree. The bright clear sky of the morning had become darkly mysterious, and the wind had died away into an ominous calm. Nature seemed altogether sentient, and willing to speak directly to a man in my own receptive mood. The seer woman evidently knew this, for she gave fully a minute of silence for the natural charm to work before she spoke. Then, in a solemn warning voice, she said, Time is flying by us. Lama's tide is nigh. These words impressed me. Why, I know not, for though I had heard of Lama's tide, I had not the smallest idea of what was meant by it. Gormala was certainly quick with her eyes. She had that gypsy quality in remarkable degree, and she seemed to read my face like an open book. There was a suppressed impatience in her manner, as of one who must stop in the midst of some important matter to explain to a child whose aid is immediately necessary. You know can why? Is it that ye dinna heed o Lammas tide, or that ye know ken o the prophecy of the mystery of the sea, and the treasures that lie hid therein? I felt more than ever abashed, and that I should have known long ago those things of which the gaunt woman spoke. Towering above me as I learned on my wheel, she went on. And ye no can, then listen and learn. And she spoke the following rune, in a strange staccato cadence, which seemed to suit our surroundings, and to sink into my heart a memory so deep that to forget would be impossible. To win the mystery of the sea, and learn the secrets that there be, Gather in one these weirds three, a gowden moon on a flowing tide, and Lamas floods for the spell to bide, a gowden man with death for his bride. There was a long pause of silence between us, and I felt very strangely. The sea before me took odd, indefinite shape, 
it seemed as though it was of crystal clearness, and that from where I gazed I could see all its mysteries. That is, I could see so as to know there were mysteries, though what they were individually I could not even dream. The past and the present and the future seemed to be mingled in one wild, chaotic, whirling dream from the mass of which thoughts and ideas seemed now and again to fly out unexpectedly on all sides as to do sparks from hot iron under the hammer. Within my heart grew vague, indefinite yearnings, aspirations, possibilities. There came a sense of power so paramount that instinctively I drew myself up to my full height and became conscious of the physical vigor within me. As I did so, I looked around and seemed to wake from a dream. Not around me, but the drifting clouds, the silent darkening land, and the brooding sea. Gormala was nowhere to be seen. End of chapter 3 Recording by Crystal Treader